Gabe, it's Mike McEntee. It's over. It's all over. The Minnesota legislative session wrapped up. Oh, it was midnight. Midnight when they finished, but oh, it kept going on and on and afterwards with uh, all sorts of uh, speeches from uh, the various, uh, you know, various people afterwards. Uh, welcome to the program. Um, Governor Mark Dayton summed up the legislative session that ended at midnight last night yeah, in just a couple of words. I've never seen a session this badly mismanaged. I've never seen a session this less transparent. I've never seen a session more beholden to the special interests. Yeah, the managers of that session were the Republican House and Senate leaders. They delivered two major bills to the governor late last night, and their fate... The tax bill and supplemental budget, you've nothing, seen those. I've seen nothing that would uh, indicate to me that I would sign either one of them. Yeah, four months of work that Republicans rolled into two big bills are likely to get Governor Dayton's veto pen. Uh, he has about 14 days to decide, uh, but as you've heard, he's likely to veto him. We'll get into what's in the bills and why they're bad later on the show. Also on the show, America's schizophrenic legal approach to marijuana. Does the federal policy towards pot need to be rethought? We'll talk to somebody who worked in the Justice Department under President Obama. But first, Tim Mayer from Talk Media News is joining us. He's going to talk about, uh, Tim, it's it's worse than Watergate, says Donald Trump. Uh, and he's not talking about his own behavior, but something else that's going on uh, with the FBI. Stop using that line because that's the line that's used by Republicans in every single investigation. That's from Bill Clinton's Whitewater to now. Uh, you know, to, to this. And this is certainly not worse than water, uh, Watergate. But what happened today was interesting, Mike. Uh, you know, President Trump has ordered investigation into the potential uh, mole or informant um, the Trump people are calling it a spy uh, that was in the campaign that the New York Times wrote about in 2016. Uh, it's really, this person was not a spy. This person was an informant. The huge difference is somebody that they turned apparently within the administration to work with the FBI on the Russian investigation. Trump wants that name released to see if uh, there's any political motivation with this individual. That's equivalent to asking, uh, you know, if you're uh, under a criminal investigation to ask the target of the investigation and tell them, tell them who your major source is. Uh, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. I think if, if he's uh, forced to do that, Rosenstein will probably resign. Um, and you could see, then you could see this um, Saturday night massacre in terms of the number of people that leave the office. I don't think that's going to get to that point. Uh, I think what's, what you're going to see is uh, Mueller's come out and said the investigation is probably going to wrap up and uh, by September. In that case, I, I think the name will probably end up coming out in some ways in court. Um, whether it's in the Manafort trial, and if Manafort pleads guilty, the name probably could be protected. But in the other cases, uh, that information, if not the name, but it'll probably be able to be deduced on on who it is. And so that's that's where that stands right now. It, mm -hmm. uh, Trump had organized this meeting with Rosenstein and Christopher Ray last week prior to his issue of the demand. They're playing this as a just a, a regular day at the office, but it looks a lot more like what he did with Comey when he brought Comey in and started to talk to him about the Russian investigation. So can Trump order an investigation into the FBI? Can he, can he do that, or is that just more obstruction of justice if he does that? Well, you can look at it both sides. It, 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 it's, a, it's a really fine line, but to be honest, in, uh, Rosenstein has instructed um, the IGs to investigate whether there's any political motivation in this at all. So that was stunning, I think, to a lot of people on the left that Rosenstein actually stood up and said, all right, we'll, we'll issue an investigation uh, with the Inspector General. Now, speaking of Inspector General, uh, there's a report coming out that he has looked at the Clinton emails, and that's coming out in the next few days. It could possibly even come out tomorrow. As you know, he did his first part Part one of the report where he suggested or recommended criminal charges against McCabe. I'm told that this particular report that's coming out in the next few days is going to basically slam the FBI for dragging the, invest the email investigation, that this is an investigation that could have been basically completed way before 
the 11th hour, and so this would not have played so much of, a, of an effect on people's voting behavior. And Clinton probably would have, could have been cleared several months, several months before um, Comey came on board and told everybody in the United States that uh, there was no criminal act. So this is possibly unearthing a bias that was against Clinton in this whole thing. Yes, and then I think in some ways that it was, but in some ways delaying it, there, there was certainly a bias, and there also was a delay of fear what they might find out on on Wiener's laptop. laptop. So <laughs> there, there was a question whether McCabe wanted to delay it because he wasn't sure if this would hurt. And I think in the end of this report, I think you're going to see potential more pressure for charges against McCabe. I mean, I think that's the whole reason why we didn't see charges immediately, is they were waiting for the second, basically, foot to drop, and this is coming this week. Hmm. Uh, Friday, uh, we had the, the school shooting that happened in uh, in Texas, and this has been, of course, the talk all weekend, what's what's going to happen here in Minnesota. There was talk that that might prompt uh you know the legislature to actually pass some laws, and we'll get back. We'll get into that later in the show. But the answer, short answer is they didn't. Um, one of the interesting things, though, was uh, Arnie Duncan. He's the former uh, Obama ter- Obama Education Secretary. Uh, had an interesting uh, suggestion to people online, and there seems to be some interest in it. Well, he's urging uh, parents to tell their students to boycott school until gun reform is passed in this country. And that may get the momentum. I mean, we saw, in, particularly here in Washington and, and all across the United States, you know, just very recently what students, when they decided to mobilize on this issue, and they marched on Washington. So who knows? That might be finally an answer to wake up to some gun reform. Now, you know that in the situation of the gun reform, that would not have helped in this particular tragic shooting because it was not the type of weapon that they're asking for things to be banned. Um, but and he, this, this um, unbelievable incident was caused by the, the perp basically stealing the guns from the father. So, I mean, that's obviously the gun reform situations may not have stopped there, but I think what you can do, which some states have done and some areas even in, in um, Texas have done, is concentrate on, you know, mental health issues and, and try to get more for mental health. But I would suggest that, you know, one of the things I thought about is that when you're a university student, a college student, and I always tell the interns this, that they always have a university email, Mike, you know, at whatever university. And the mm-hmm. reason they have the university email is because the student doesn't own that email and the university does. So they can follow up if there's, a, you know, you know, incidents or anything like that where they need to monitor somebody's email. They certainly have the right to do that. I would suggest in high school that something similar is done, you know, as well as having monitoring their their uh, their emails, have a high school email system set up. Also, the, the guidance counselors and so forth, there should be some monitoring of the social media because there were certain clues, that I think, that were left on, at least for questions on this particular shooter um, in a social media profile that may have at least brought a conversation up in terms of where this guy's mind and his head was at. So, but who's going to end up monitoring that? I mean, right now we're asking uh, teachers to do a lot, uh, school officials to do a lot. Uh, do you, you leave that to with the police, or, or where, does, where does that I think, uh, fall? I, I think, you, you, know, it, you know, it's similar. Like, you know, if you, it's similar. There's technology out there that can monitor, you know, you, you're on your cell phone, you drive by the NSA building, and you, you say certain words, your phone is going to be checked what you're talking about. I mean, it just, it, there, there's certain things like that will, that will key. And I think there's technology out there right now that people can basically, you know, take everybody's social media platform, and it's not foolproof, of every student there and start monitoring certain keywords, certain things that are images and so forth. And I'm, I'm sure there's technology that's available um, that could, you know, help um, police departments and law enforcement officers on that. You know, you're not going to catch every single but every single person who decides to commit these types of crimes, but I think technology is the key to solving a lot of this. Technology yeah. in terms of guns, I mean, 
you know, one of the big things that the NRA fought against, as you know, was like these, these basically, for lack of a better word, these, these guns that have the fingerprint where you basically, the, the owner of the gun is the only one who can fire that gun. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, those are the types of things that I think, you know, technology can be used. And I think that's part of the gun reform. And so it's, I think it's more than just banning assault weapons. It's a multiple, yeah, I, multiple things I, that can be done. I think that's exactly it, and that's where I think a lot of people or the arguments against things get hung up because everybody says, "Yeah, but," and then they talk about something that won't work with that. But if you got something that's even fifty percent effective, seventy-five percent effective these days, that's a reduction in the you know the causes that make this the stew of things that are kind of behind this happening. Because here in the United States, we have more gun shootings per capita than any other country in the entire world by far. I mean, there is no comparison. And the big difference is the number of guns that we have in this country. That is the biggest difference. And so somehow we've got to reduce that number. But anything that we can do, whether it's mental health, is is obviously going to help. But I think ultimately, until we deal with that big underlying cause, we're not going to have anything. The last thing is there's not enough gun safety training. You know, when you drive a car, you have to pass a test. Mm-hmm. When you want to purchase a gun, you just go purchase a gun. You don't have to take a test or anything like that on gun safety or anything else. So, I mean, there's all of those things have to really be looked at in terms of teaching people, you know, the ones that do purchase guns, how to use guns. And there's probably statistically, if you look at people out in some western states, Wyoming, Montana, and so forth, it's those, a lot of those children, one of the first gifts they get underneath the Christmas tree is a gun. They're taught from day one how to use it. You know, if you do that in the, you know, in, in D.C. and Baltimore and in like Detroit and highly populated cities like Chicago, that's not done there. You get the guns from the streets, and nobody teaches would, you how to use the gun. I, I would be happy if we regulated guns with the same amount of safety cautions that we have with cars. Because, you know, take a look what we had with cars in the 50s. Uh, you know, Ralph Nader, who's on this, this uh, uh, station these days, wrote, you know, unsafe at any speed. And it was really that these were vehicles out there just roaming around and thousands of people were dying. Now, thousands of people still die from them, but it's way, way down because we've taken lots of different actions over time. Everything from headrests to seatbelts to airbags, all these types of things have uh, reduced the number of deaths that we have with automobiles. And people don't complain, oh, gee, I can't drive anywhere because I don't. I, my car is too safe. I mean, that's that's what we're dealing with here. We're 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 dealing with guns like we're still back in the horse and buggy days. We got to bring this into the uh, into the current century. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, there's a couple other things I want to touch base with you on. Uh, Donald Trump here, he famously uh, said trade wars are easy to win. So I wanted to check in with you. How's that trade war going with China these days? Listen, it's on hold. It looks like over the weekend they've been some negotiations. Uh, China's going to buy more agriculture, foods in the United States, and everything is on hold. The market responded favorably to that. So there's no trade war going on right now. I, I don't know. It's stunning. And I, I think this has to go back to, you know, just a week ago when he, he was uh, made this unbelievable promise of getting helping China with jobs and so forth with a, with a contract with a, a telecom giant that basically the Pentagon doesn't want anybody to go near because of national security issues. Although the Trump team, as you would call, the Trump uh, companies were going to benefit quite a bit handsomely and millions and millions of dollars with this Chinese company. And the next thing you know, the, the tariffs are basically gone. And we don't really have a lot of details other than they're going to buy more, you know, agriculture from the United States. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, uh, is interesting. I, I, Trump isn't talking a lot about it uh, lately. I mean, he, he's bringing up China, but I think people are going to look at this, and if uh, he doesn't win on something like this, it's going to be viewed as, well, you know, you failed. Uh, and Trump does not like to admit that anything fails. But in this particular case, failure in this particular case may be a good thing because it, the, the, the war doesn't go forward. Yes. It's just, it's just, that's Trump world. You know, yeah. he, pleaded to, he basically did this to the entire base got the base happy and then he basically comes back to hey i cut a deal everything's fine you know trade's going to go great and the market's going to go crazy for what i just did 
unbelievable manipulation of the stock market again. Yeah. Um, hey, final one I want to hit with you here. Uh, the Supreme Court today, we had a lot of rulings come out, but one of them uh, affecting labor, It's uh, the name is Epic Systems versus Lewis. And what it essentially does is uh, it says to uh, employees, you can't band together to take legal action if uh, you've signed a, a clause here saying that you're going to agree to arbitration. And this has to do with wage theft. Uh, what, do, what do we know about this case? This is This is probably... You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the dissent on this, and uh, it is it is probably going to affect some 25 million employment contracts. And this basically means that if there's a, a problem with a company, there's going to be less class action lawsuits if these people are under, under uh, contract. And it, it's, again, giving enough to the corporations and not having a level playing field for employees. So if you had, for example, you know, uh, you know, employee, employee complaints against potential pay, um, harassment, or anything like that, you could not band together and form a, a civil action lawsuit against a particular company. And they couldn't use another person's, um, you know, as a witness or anything like that because they're under an employee contract that forbids them from doing that. Yeah, this this is just really. I mean, it, the courts have been going this direction, but this is really um, just a real slap at uh, at labor. Even though it's not union labor, it's a big slap at labor. And uh, I, I I just hope that eventually something can can turn this around in Congress. Look, one of one of the if you get a chance, if your listeners get a chance to go see uh, RBG's a film that came out, the documentary, because. You get an understanding when what dissent opinions really are. Dissent opinions, basically, for the last perhaps ten years that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's been writing there, is basically for a, a message or a letter to Congress to start to do something to basically, you know, change the laws, correct, correct something that the court did that was wrong. And we've seen that happen with with unequal, with unequal pay in a Goodyear case. Um, where Congress passed legislation, that, you know, so people could not be discriminated against pay. Uh, so maybe this is where this is headed. And, it, and when you read your opinion, I urge everybody to go read your opinion. It seems to me that's where this thing is probably going to end up with Congress to try, if they're going to be able to do something to try to equal the playing fields with employees versus corporations. Yeah, but a lot of like a lot of her dissenting opinions, I don't think Congress is listening and the only way that they are going to is if voters speak up and make them pay attention, either change who's there or make some very, very difficult contests coming up. Yeah, not unless the midterms uh, have a dramatic change right now and uh, the makeup of Congress. All right. We've been speaking with Tim Meyer from Talk Media News. We have to run Tim, but hey, thanks for checking in with us today on all the big stories breaking in DC. Thank you, Mike. We're going to take a break here, but fig up next here on the program, figuring out what happened this weekend at the end of the legislative session. We'll be back in just a few minutes with the Mike McEntee Show. It's a great day for a bike ride. What's that? You can't find your bike? Oh, it has a flat. No problem. Take it to Nokomis Cycle, the hardest working bike shop in town. They're celebrating their 23rd year in business. In that time, they've mastered the art of friendly, dependable service. So keep life and your bike moving with Nokomis Cycle, working harder to make you go faster. Nokomis Cycle at the corner of 46th and Bloomington Avenue South in Minneapolis or at NokomisCycle.com. Guess who called me the other day? You did. Hi, Mark Sommerfeld of Computer Revolution in Roseville. I want to thank AM950 listeners who called to thank us for supporting the station. So here's an offer exclusive to 950 listeners. Bring your broken computer or cell phone to our Roseville store, say I'm an AM950 listener, and you'll receive $20 off any repair. Computer Revolution with Cell Phone Repair, located in Roseville at Highway 36 and Fairview Avenue, or call 651-633-6600. And thanks. Connections Radio Show is all about tapping into our hardwired hunger to connect. 
We examine meaningful connections to ourselves, our community, and the world around us by opening the door to innovative insights by a wide variety of interesting guests. We'll make the connections to something bigger than ourselves. Join me, Lori Fitz, your host of Connections Radio Show, and together we'll make the connections. Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Hi, it's Tom Hartman. You know, Continental Diamond is special for a lot of reasons. The owners are Jimmy and Helene Pessis, a husband and wife team who had a dream to open their own store more than 30 years ago. They've built a business that is the gold standard. The readers of Minnesota Bride Magazine have named Continental Diamond the best jeweler for the last seven years. Why? Amazing, friendly, no-pressure customer service, a selection of fine diamonds and designed jewelry unlike anywhere else, and the fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies are pretty great, too. Continental Diamond in St. Louis Park and at ContinentalDiamond.com. Welcome back to the Mike McEntee Show here on AM 950. Governor Mark Dayton is uh, considering what to do here now that the legislative session is done. He's got 14 days to decide whether to veto or sign the bills. And, well, he's uh, probably not going to sign any of them. You know, I've seen nothing that would uh, indicate to me that I would sign either one of them. Yeah, those are the two big bills that he's talking about, the tax bill and the budget bill. Governor Dayton told Republican lawmakers that he wasn't going to accept their tax bill unless he got $138 million in emergency school aid uh, for every school district, including 125, excuse me, $124 million this year and $14 million next year. That's not for every school district, but to help every school district. So the Republicans came back with a proposal that frees up about $225 million. Uh, Sound good? Not really. The key word there is freeze up. Most of it was moving money around, which Governor Dayton is referring to as a shell game. Expressed before, even aside from the education part, which they claim is uh, $225 million in, in, uh, in funding for the schools, just not true. $50 $50 million of it is, is taken out of the, re- the reserve. That's new money. The rest of it is repurposing uh, existing money that the schools have for staff training and for community education, which the, 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 the teachers and the uh, community education people oppose. So it's not new money. They're just taking money from one pot or two pots and putting it into another one. I, I, I just don't understand how they can keep representing these things that are just so patently untrue. It's just, just, uh, it's really appalling. Now, some of that money would come out of funds used for teachers to continue to take development classes. Uh, Representative Loon, Republican on the Education Committee, says she suspects teachers would prefer to keep their jobs overtaking professional development classes. So let's just use that money that we're using for development classes and fund the jobs instead. Well, that got the attention of uh, Derek, who is uh, pays attention to our Twitter feed on the uptake. Derek, he is a K-4 teacher in Delano who replied, I wonder, does she, Representative Loon, know that we are required to complete 125 hours of professional development over five years to keep our license? Without our license, we would lose our job anyway. And then remember how school safety became such a top concern of the legislature in the wake of the school shooting in Parkland, Florida? The bonding bill includes $25 million for safety improvements to school buildings, but money for other expenses like mental health counseling and safety staff at schools was tucked into the omnibus bill that Dayton says that he is going to veto. Uh, I've implored the leaders to send the school safety bill as a separate bill. They've sent me umpteen standalone bills about the most trivial subjects. And here we got something that's vitally important. And they're putting in a bill, again, the omnibus budget bill, because they know I'm not going to sign that. And so they can can go around saying, well, Dayton vetoes school safety. It's, it really is appalling. Yeah, it's all about the politics, because uh, the Republicans are trying to figure out how do they run against Governor Mark Dayton when Governor Mark Dayton is not on the ballot. Governor Mark Dayton's not running this year, so he can pretty much do what he wants to do. Um, so stand standalone safety bill never materialized. 
never materialized this session. Now, as I mentioned, Dayton has pledged to veto the tax bill, which includes cuts in income taxes for the two lowest income tiers in the state tax code. And that's all because of you know, the recent federal tax changes. You need to make some changes in our laws here. Otherwise, it gets very complicated. But Republicans who drafted the bill said it would result in either a tax cut or no change for most Minnesotans. But Governor Dayton says this tax bill gives multinational companies a huge tax break. So expect that this will get a veto and the new governor and the legislature will have to deal with this you know, topic next session. Now, as expected, Governor Mark Dito, Governor Mark Vito, Governor Mark Dayton vetoed legislation that would have allowed Enbridge to build a controversial new oil pipeline without getting regulatory approval. The legislation would have terminated a three-year process before the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission that is nearly complete. The PUC is slated next month to decide if Enbridge's new Line 3 across northern Minnesota is needed and what route it should take. The existing pipeline, uh, which takes Canadian oil uh, to the company's terminal in Superior, is aging corroding and operating at just over half of its capacity due to safety concerns and they want to replace line three with a new pipeline that would run on a new route environmental groups though and indian bands oppose the pipeline and the new route saying it would open a new region of lakes rivers and wild rice waters to degradation from possible oil spills uh, another note here uh, uh, paying attention to the republican bonding bill was senator scott dibble he looked at it and he said it the republican bonding bill passed during the last half hour of the session he tweeted this uh, almost $544 million for roads, zero for buses and transit. He reminds us that elections matter. Elections matter. And speaking about elections, uh, Governor, uh, the governor's race here, we got several developments in the governor's race here over the weekend and today. Rebecca Otto, the DFL state auditor uh, running for governor, today named a founding member of the National Democratic Muslim Caucus, uh, Zarina Baber, I think it is pronounced, as her lieutenant governor running mate. Baber has worked on expanding health care access by establishing a free clinic in Fridley and has served on the board of nonprofit advocates for human rights. And this would make them, uh, you know, Baber and Otto, uh, and I will get that name right. I, I just have to learn. Uh, the only all-female ticket for governor and lieutenant governor this year, they are not the state's first such ticket. But if elected, Baber would be the first Muslim woman to hold statewide office. That's according to Rebecca Otto. Now, uh, if you're keeping track, uh, Rep Representative Peggy Flanagan is Tim Walz's lieutenant governor candidate, so that only leaves one DFL candidate without a running mate. That's Erin Murphy. Today, she said she's going to wait to see if she gets the party endorsement before choosing a running mate. She said in the state that she is having conversations with a small group of candidates, but added that, quote, it's important to have the option of avoiding infighting by having a conversation with my DFL opponents to see if we can come together to put Minnesotans first. That, to me, sounds a lot like we might have a brokered convention. Hey, I'll be governor if you be lieutenant governor. Or at least that's something on somebody's mind who wrote that. And it's very possible. We're only a couple weeks from the DFL convention, and right now you have three candidates, and no one can say who has the majority of the delegates, if anybody. And if nobody has the majority of the delegates, and remember you need 60% for endorsement, that's a recipe for no endorsement, and a primary. Uh, a couple other quick notes. Uh, Young DFL uh, endorsed Aaron Murphy. And uh, Education Minnesota, one of the largest uh, unions here in the state, endorsed Tim Walls. So uh, the whole governor's race heating up here as we head towards the convention. Coming up next year on the Mike McEntee Show, is it time to rethink marijuana policy? We'll dig into that with an, a, a Justice Department official from the Obama administration with some interesting thoughts on it. That's all next year on the Mike McEntee Show. Turn to Auto Technical with your vehicle donation. We have families waiting for a car. You know, over 85% of unemployed are successful in finding and keeping a job if they have dependable transportation. A car plus a job equals a life changed. 612-919-5526. We have families waiting for a car. 919-5526 or autotech.org. Being a dog is awesome, except when you really gotta go, but you're stuck inside. 
That's why I had my human call the urban dog. Daily walks, field trips, play groups, one-on-one time, safe off-leash play, and pet sitting. I love being an urban dog. The urban dog works with your schedule and can create a plan that fits your needs. The urban dog. Exercise, explore, socialize. Let the journey begin. Call 651-231-6333. That's 651-231-6333. Did you know that tooth decay is the most common disease in America and that over half the American population has some form of periodontal disease? Simply brushing and flossing don't seem to be enough. The abundant bacteria in your mouth thrive off sugar to produce acid and plaque. But what if you could actually prevent bacteria from converting sugar into the harmful byproducts responsible for tooth decay and periodontal disease? Daily Dental Care is a life sciences company that leverages our microbiology expertise to create oral care products that promote strong teeth, healthy gums, and fresh breath. Our lozenges safely and effectively neutralize harmful bacteria and their disease-causing byproducts like acid and plaque without harming health-promoting bacteria that guard your mouth against the destruction that sugar causes. Supplement your daily dental hygiene routine with our convenient dental lozenges. Go to dailydentalcareswithans.com or Amazon to purchase and use promo code DDC95501 at checkout for a 25% discount on your first purchase. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Daily dental care lozenges are not intended to replace daily dental hygiene practices. Welcome back to the Mike McIntyre Show. America appears to be at a crossroads when it comes to marijuana. States, including Minnesota, have been legalizing it for medical use, and some, such as Colorado, have legalized it for recreational use. But since President Donald Trump has taken office, the Justice Department has moved to enforce drug laws more strictly. Joining us to talk about where this is likely to lead is Ed Chung, who worked in the Justice Department during the Obama administration and is now the Vice President of Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. Ed, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Good to have you on here. So first off, let's start off with the the current federal drug policy. Uh, It's why the United States has so many people in prison. Connect the dots for us on that for us. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think if you look at the numbers of the people who are currently incarcerated at the Bureau of Prisons, that you'll still see drug enforcement to be the top reason. And after that is immigration and other crimes as well. But the war on drugs that the federal government and as well as other states have been waging for the last several decades continues to be the primary way that this country deals with drugs. And what we're seeing these days is that more and more states, such as Minnesota, as as you said, uh, they're looking for other ways, uh, whether it be treatment, whether it be legalization. uh, But they're finding that the criminal justice system is not the way to deal with issues related to drugs, drug consumption, drug sales. And so what this current government is doing, what this current administration is doing, is actually re-upping uh, the really bad parts and the harmful parts of the war on drugs by focusing on all types of drug crimes, uh, by focusing on all types of drugs, even though research has shown that not all drugs are at the, of the same potency or the same addiction levels or the same harms, and that there are other and better ways to deal with them besides always looking at enforcement. Why are so many of the people who are arrested and prosecuted for marijuana offenses, why are they black? Well, you're talking to somebody who was a former prosecutor, uh, both at the federal and the state level, and these are a lot of these issues come to enforcement choices. And so you look at communities where uh, enforcement happens, enforcement generally, not only drug crimes, but uh, a harsher approach, and you'll find that uh, the enforcement happens in communities of color. Uh, now, there, there are some types of crimes that... Uh, happen and that police respond to in a certain kind of way. It's responding to, for example, if there is uh, a shooting or a robbery or something like that. But then there are other types of crimes when you're trying to be preventative, where there are choices that are being made into which jurisdictions or which districts or which neighborhoods um, enforcement efforts will take place. And too often in our history, in the country and in a lot of communities, that enforcement choice has been made uh, in communities of color. And that continues today, even though states and, and cities are making changes. I think the overall narrative continues to be that too many enforcement efforts are happening in uh, in communities of color. And so um, you, you think about uh, 
where other opportunities or where other solutions can happen, those other solutions should also be focused on communities of color. Let's talk about marijuana itself for a moment, because when I was back in high school, they run you through health class and they talk to you about drugs and they say marijuana, it's a gateway drug. Is is that really the case? Is using marijuana going to lead you to a, a life of drugs, other drugs, harder drugs and crime? Is I mean, that's kind of the, what we were taught when we were in school way back when. Yeah, I remember the same types of messages when I was in school as well. And um, what research has shown is that, no, that's not the case. Um, that there is no necessarily uh, correlative effect of having, uh, you know, consumed marijuana. I'm going to use the official terms uh, like consuming marijuana or consuming cannabis. And it leading to any kind of other um, uh, drug issues, substance use disorders, substance misuse, uh, whatever the case may be. And so it's, it's kind of this uh, same thing that we're seeing from what I'll call traditionalists who rely on uh, or rely on uh, mantras or messages that haven't been proven, uh, that weren't based on science to begin with. And as research comes out, that uh, debunking some of these theories and myths, uh, policymakers need to adjust to that and embrace that instead of just holding on to the same types of uh, messages or themes that have been uh, behind bad policies in the past. So how did marijuana get lumped in with things like heroin, fentanyl, ecstasy, all these types of Schedule One drugs that have such uh, nasty things connected with them? Uh, what can happen to you if you're, if you're caught using them? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So you're talking about Schedule One. Um, so the, the Controlled Substances Act, um, uh, several decades ago when it was passed, listed out schedules. And one is the most serious level uh, of substances and five being the least. And if, you ha- if, you, if it is a Schedule One drug, that means it is a highly addictive substance and it has absolutely no medical value. And so what, if you're listed as a Schedule One drug, what that means is you can't do any research around that issue um, that is you know, subsidized and funded by the government. Also, there are a lot of highly restric- high restrictions that are placed on um, the amount of substances that can be uh, actually, the, uh, the amount of actual marijuana that can actually be studied. And so uh, we know from the studies that have happened to date that equating heroin and marijuana should never have been in the same conversation. But these laws have not been revised, again, for decades. And so we're relying on decades-old knowledge that, again, has been updated but has not been updated in law. And so what we're looking at here is uh, trying to push Congress to change the law to and make sure at the very least that uh that marijuana is not on the schedule and it's certainly not a schedule one substance because we know that there are positive medical valid benefits to uh to marijuana and that's, that's something that you've seen in in sports uh, in health um, in recovery in treating mental health issues in treating uh, a whole bunch of other uh, physiological and public health issues. So um, it's something, again, that policymakers need to update what they're relying on so that it is not just, quote-unquote, common knowledge. Now, we've seen states respond to this in various different ways. I mentioned what Minnesota has done here, uh, making it, uh, you know, for, for using it for medical purposes. It's legal, but there's strict restrictions on that recreational use here in Minnesota is still very much verboten. There's there's kind of a continuum here, though, of, of solutions that people are looking at, everywhere from decriminalization all the way to legalization. Tell me, kind of, tell me what the difference is. Yeah, so decriminalization really is about uh, recreational use. So uh, most states or jurisdictions that are looking at decrim are doing so not to decriminalize sales, um, uh, and not to decriminalize large amounts of uh, possession uh, or possessing large amounts of marijuana. What they're looking to do is lowering the penalties for uh, possession of small amounts for recreational use or eliminating penalties in some kind of way. So um, it, it really doesn't touch the sale aspect of it. So that's kind of on the more small-c conservative end, if you will. It, when you get to more legalization of states like Colorado and Washington, you're looking at the full-scale um, um, ability of companies to form, uh, to sell marijuana, 
so that uh, marijuana use and possession and, and consumption uh, is more prevalent in terms of recreational use. Now, there's still a lot of limitations, uh, just like there are limitations when it comes to alcohol, for example. So there are age limits, there are amount limits, and so forth. Um, but that's the spectrum. And I think the real difference here is that decriminalization should be a point where we start. Because, you know, from my perspective as somebody who works on criminal justice reform, the issues surrounding the criminalization of marijuana has really affected people of color, black people, who have been mostly the ones that have borne the brunt of the arrests and uh, prosecutions of marijuana consumption. And so this is a justice issue uh, first and foremost. But the continuum, as you're talking about, uh, going from something that is uh, decriminalized to legalized, is in in the view of what we've looked at, kind of the natural progression. And so where we're coming at uh, this issue from is uh, the states are going to eventually do this more and more and broaden and liberalize uh, marijuana laws for a lot of reasons. And, and research will continue, in our opinion, to support this effort. So decriminalization is the first step, but there are a lot of other factors that will come into play that will eventually lead us into, I think, um, a much more or many more jurisdictions that are adopting uh, legalization and uh, doing what Colorado and Washington have done. We're speaking with Ed Chung, who is with the Justice Department during the Obama administration. And during the Obama administration, we had the states start doing these things that we're talking about, where legalization uh, on various levels. Or, But we've seen something different happen here during the uh, Trump administration. And we've seen stricter enforcement. During the Obama administration, was the government deciding to just kind of look the other way? Was there any official policy? And how is the Trump administration able to come back and do something completely different now? Yeah, and this is where um, leadership really matters and elections absolutely matter. Um, what uh, the previous Justice Department did in the Obama administration was take an overall uh, different approach on uh, enforcement to begin with. So this this was a prosecutorial mandate or a dictate from the top saying that um, there is discretion and, and prosecutors should look at the cer- entire like totality of circumstances of a particular case and recommend pr- charges and sentences accordingly. What this current Justice Department has done has taken the exact opposite approach and reinstated basically a policy that says you have to charge the most serious crimes possible and the crimes or the offenses that yield the most significant uh, or the longest census. So that's one. And then secondly, specifically with marijuana, uh, the previous administration's approach had been that where states are legalizing and where there is a conflict between state law and federal law. So for example, where the state has legalized marijuana for sale and small amounts of possession and so forth, that, say, that possession of recreational use would come into conflict with federal law. So the previous administration said, that's not a priority for our uh, administration. We will devote our limited resources to, a, to more serious crimes, violent crimes, terrorism, etc. The current administration has taken, again, the exact opposite and less uh, smart approach, if you will, and saying that that restriction or that focus on more serious crimes is out the window. So it really puts people in states who have legalized and liberalized marijuana laws in a bind where they don't know, uh, they, there's confusion about uh, what the federal government will do. There's confusion about uh, which law trumps, if you will, and sorry for that as well, but which law uh, supersedes and, and takes precedent. And, um, whether or not, if you're doing something legal in your state, um, if you will also then be uh, looked at um, and investigated for a federal crime. And so the, the uncertainty that is being placed by this current administration on uh, those states is uh, really concerning. So it said uncertainty we have because the policy can change depending upon who's in office. The only way to probably get some certainty is change the laws so they're more specific. What is Congress doing on that? What should Congress be doing on that? So there, there's actually a very big bipartisan momentum to liberalize marijuana laws at the federal level, but it hasn't reached a crescendo. Uh, the hopeful part of this is that there have been 
people from both sides of the aisle stepping up and, and speaking out on it and also introducing legislation. So the, the Marijuana Justice Act from uh, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey um, has four co-spon- or three other co-sponsors on there. Uh, you have Senator Cory Gardner, a Republican from Colorado, who's working on this issue. And uh, several weeks ago uh, in uh, mid-April, uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer came out in support of descheduling marijuana and decriminalizing it at the federal level. And so those are all uh, steps that have been taken that reflect and mirror public opinion. And I think the last several polls that have been taken on this particular issue uh, shows that at least 60% of the American public, if not more, support the legalization of marijuana. And so Congress is taking steps to follow suit. Um, and I think more and more we'll see the momentum building so that, uh, you know, eventually uh, marijuana will be descheduled um, and there will be steps taken to uh, legalize it as well. So this is Congress. There's momentum for it. But right now, I don't. it sounds like you're saying there's maybe not the votes to do it. And then there's a question of whether President Trump would sign something like that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, what, what you see from uh, the Trump administration, uh, the, the first place that you go to, you look at the Department of Justice, and you look at who's in place there as the Attorney General. And this current Attorney General, again, uh, is repeating and rejuvenating the same uh, unfounded uh, views on marijuana and how substance use overall should be dealt with in this country. And so um, the the likelihood that something will happen during this administration and this or the following Congress is pretty minimal. But I think the growing number of senators, a growing number of rep- uh, representatives uh, from both sides of the aisle will uh, start showing more support again. And it's, it should be a reflection of what the American people uh, believe and feel as well. And, and I think in the coming years, um, and hopefully it won't be years, it'll be sooner than that, um, that you'll see, uh, you'll, you'll see liberalization. And the first step is exactly what I think those uh, current politicians have been talking about, which is descheduling uh, marijuana from the controlled substances schedules and ensuring that there's more research, there's, more, uh, there's less uh, prosecutions uh, around this uh, particular substance. Well, Ed, as you said earlier, elections matter. And so, folks, when you're thinking about where you're going to vote or what you're going to vote for, perhaps this is an issue you want to look into. And you can do that by going over to AmericanProgress.org, where Ed Chung has put together some interesting uh, information. A lot of it we just talked about here, but there's more information there that you might want to take a look at. Hey, Ed, I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Well, coming up here next on the Mike McEntee Show, you've been missing Barack Obama. Well, he's back, sort of. We'll talk about it. Coming up here next on the Mike McEntee Show on AM 950. Tom Hartman here letting you know how you can save money with All Energy Solar. One of the myths about solar is that it's too expensive and you need lots of money down. The truth? Solar is available for little or no money down. And if you have a great site for solar, you might even save money right away on a monthly basis. So don't wait to switch. You'll see your investment pay off the sooner you switch to All Energy Solar. So start saving today and visit allenergysolar.com. Burger Moe's is the perfect neighborhood gathering spot before and after Excel Center events or anytime. Moe is serious about burgers, offering 20 fresh, never frozen varieties. Burger Moe's also offers delicious appetizers, soups, salads, as well as unburgers, dogs, paninis, shakes, and desserts. Not to mention more than 60 beers on tap and happy hours twice daily. Burger Moe's is located at 242 West 7th Street in St. Paul with plenty of free parking and online at BurgerMoe's.com. Hi, this is Matt from the Green Home Doctors. Did you know approximately 80% of our homes in our area are not sealed and insulated properly? A typical home has air leakage equivalent to that of a large open window. Green Home Doctors has treated thousands of homes with their special diagnostic equipment and can prescribe the appropriate remedy for your house. Stop air conditioning your whole neighborhood this summer. Call today and take advantage of rebates from Excel Energy and CenterPoint Energy. Visit greenhomedr.com. 
matter what your taste, you'll find the music you're looking for at the Electric Fetus. Pick from rock, pop, international, roots music, and so much more on CD and vinyl. Or create your own compilation of favorites with the exclusive Mix and Burn CD station. Only available at the Electric Fetus. Dust off your vinyl or just make some space by turning your unwanted music into cash. The used selection changes daily, so check out the new arrivals often. 2000 4th Avenue South in Minneapolis and online at efetus.com. Welcome back to the Mike McEntee Show here on AM 950. Norman Goldman coming up here in just a few minutes after the news. A lot of people miss President Obama. I mean, as president. And no, we can't do anything about that. There's a constitutional amendment that prevents that. But uh, President, Obama, uh, President, Barack, President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama are coming to your neighborhood, so to speak. They're getting into the TV business with an announcement today that they have signed a multi-year deal with Netflix. Uh, they have formed their own production company called Higher Ground Productions uh, for the material. And in announcing in a deal that's been rumored since March, Netflix offered no specifics on the shows that they would make. Uh, they said that they would offer a diverse mix of content, which could mean just about anything. It's potentially including scripted and unscripted series, documentaries, or features. Uh, here's the quote from Barack Obama. We hope to cultivate and curate the talented, inspiring, creative voices who are able to promote greater empathy and understanding between peoples and help them share their stories with the wider world. Uh, the Obamas can be expected to participate in some of the programming on screen, said a person familiar with the deal, but not authorized to talk publicly about it uh, because, you know, they'd probably be taken out to the back in the woodshed and shot. No, no, just beaten. Uh, the programming itself is not expected to be partisan in nature. Uh, a president, uh, the president who often derided the way things were covered on cable news won't be joining in. Uh, the type of things that Obama, like other presidents, brought forward as guests at his State of the Union addresses might provide kind of some of the fodder for the types of stories they want to tell. Uh, Michelle Obama said, Barack and I have always believed in the power of storytelling to inspire us, to make us think differently about the world around us, and to help and open up our minds to each other. Uh, no content from the deal expected until at least 2019, uh, said another person familiar with the deal who probably would also be <laughs> face repercussions if we knew he or she's name. But speaking about storytelling there, it is a great way to inspire people. It is a great way to make people think differently. And if you're looking to, you know, influence people, if you're looking to, uh, you know, do something great for your organization, if you're looking to win, the best storytellers win. So you, your organization, or your cause are more likely to be successful if you can effectively tell your story. Uh, we want you to give your chances of success a boost this June with storytelling classes from The Uptake. We have just you know opened them up. You can go over to theuptake.org slash classes and sign up. There's storytelling classes on audio, on you know live video that I'm teaching, photography, audio, all those kind of great things, writing. So come on over, sign up, and uh, become a winner. You will have so much winning. I'll be back tomorrow. Mom, thanks for listening.